What is going on? Thanks for tuning into Blissful Prospecting. My name is Jason Bay. You can call me Jay Bay. And today I'm talking to James Bodden about bad advice that actually works in outbound prospecting. So if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, this podcast is for reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with their prospects. But hate that there's all this complicated advice out there around what to do or what not to do with your cold outreach. So we're here to dispel some of those myths for you today. So if that's you, you're definitely in the right place. Let's get to the interview with James. So James is one of those guys that I've seen his content around a lot and I've known him for a little while now, but we haven't had him on the podcast. And I was looking at that and I reached out to him and I was like, dude, we got to get you on the podcast, man. And one of the things about James that really sticks out about the work that he's doing is one, the guy is just a student when it comes to sales and outbound. And in particular, he spent a lot of time working at companies that do outsource sales development. So if you're unfamiliar with what that is, these are companies where you can hire them and they will be the SDR or BDR for you and do the appointment setting. It's actually what we used to do at Blissful Prospecting when we first started out. So I've just had some really good conversations with him about kind of state of the industry and what's going on and what's working and what isn't. And in my last conversation, he's like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do that works that goes against conventional advice. So for example, asking people how they're doing on a cold call, which is a big no-no that you hear a lot from people like me, sales trainers and coaches around, hey, you shouldn't ask someone how they're doing at the top of a cold call. But one of my clients, uh, Lindsay, she does that in her cold calls and it works really great. So we're going to be dispelling a lot of those types of things with your cold calls and how you open them, how you use LinkedIn, cold email. And he's going to dig into a lot of the quote unquote bad advice that you hear out there that actually really works and how to provide context to what you're doing. I'm super excited for you to listen to this one, James. I'm a big fan of what he does and he really knows his shit. So before we get to that, a couple things. So if you're someone that's just hanging around for the free stuff, it's all good. You're obviously listening to the podcast. Make sure to check me out on LinkedIn. I post daily content there. And if you're looking for more help and looking to make an investment either in yourself or in your team, we do prospecting boot camps. So it is an investment. Uh, but you get some coaching and feedback from me on your email so I can help you troubleshoot and tackle your individualized problems. You get access to a course and it's got the best material you're going to find out there on how to cold email, cold call sequence, objection handle, everything to land that first meeting. We've had reps and we have tons of case studies and testimonies. I'm telling you, it's the best stuff that you're going to find out there as an individual. So make sure to check that out at blissfulprospecting.com if you're interested in that. And two, if you are a sales leader, we have an accelerator program where it's that same content in the bootcamp, but we customize it for you and your company and your team. So if you're looking for help with your team, you want to get them more confident on the phones, you want them setting more appointments and able to have those executive level conversations with a C-suite, make sure to check out our accelerator program at blissfulprospecting.com or email me at jason at blissfulprospecting.com. I'd love to help you out. Let's get to the interview with James. So I got to ask you, like I ask everyone lately, what was your favorite childhood breakfast? What'd you eat as a kid? Oh, waffles. Eggo waffles. Yeah, it goes. Okay. The normal kind, the buttermilk kind, the chocolate chip, what kind? Original. <laughs> original. Okay. It transitioned into buttermilk whenever buttermilk came out. But yeah. I was six years old. This is 93. Yeah. You know, 1993. It was original Eggos with the Aunt Jemima syrup 
with yep. the country crock margarine butter, like the worst stuff for you. Yeah. You know, just nothing that they probably could even legally sell now with all the trans <laughs> corn syrup and trans fat. Four of those. Two of them it won't do it. You got to put two in the toaster, take those out, put two more in, and then do the four stack, and then I'm ready to go. Dang, dude. That was it. You're just yeah. fueling up in the morning. Okay. Carb right. loader. Yeah. You know, and then growing up and finding out that that was just a horrible, horrible thing to eat to start my day yeah. out for energy, but didn't matter. And from our conversation prior to hitting record, it sounds like you're an athlete too, which yeah, I played a lot of basketball, very active. Yeah. And, you know, for 16, 17, 18 years old, I could never understand why I was so tired a lot of the time. Yeah. When you're eating pop tarts and eggs. Come and- to find out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We find out that we were just fueling our bodies with the exact opposite of what we needed. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's it. Very easy, very easy answer for me on that one. Very easy. No, I love it, man. Do you remember much about your first kind of cold calling experience? What that was like? Maybe landing your first couple of meetings, anything like that that you can share? Yeah. I mean, I think I started in the B2B cold calling world after six years of retail sales. Yeah. So it wasn't a completely foreign thing to me. I was excited to have made the transition. I had a lot of like eager energy to just kind of figure it out. And I knew I was going to suck at it. I knew it was going to be something new, but I had also been there before in retail sales. I'd been through that process and knew that I could figure it out. One of the things that I remember being told, I got lucky my first job making cold calls. I worked with other people that had been doing it for a while. So they were fantastic and nice enough to give me advice. One of the best things I was ever told was just take a couple of deep breaths before you start calling. Just don't feel like you got to rush right into it. Just take your time and know that if it all goes south, you just hang up and poof, they're gone you know, which was a great thing for me because I was coming from retail. And so that I was like, oh yeah, they're not in the store. Yeah, I don't have to walk them out. Fantastic. So super helpful as I got started. So I remember early on my first few cold calls, I don't really remember the outcomes or what was said on them, but I do remember feeling and recognizing the power of just like, okay, couple of breaths before I start for sure. Do you think there's something there to, because it sounds like the Retail experience desensitized you a little bit mm-hmm. to the rejection. Is you think there's something to that when it comes to call reluctance? And the reason I ask is this is, dude, this is like the number one problem with any SaaS team that I work with that has young SDRs and BDRs is two-thirds of the people be like, yeah, I got major call reluctance. I, I do not like making this. I make fewer calls every week because I don't like doing it. I don't like the rejection. Yeah. Anything like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, having been in the space. For a while now, anti-fragility is a huge character trait that if you can develop Mm -hmm. that or you come into cold calling role with that, you are going to be light years (laughs) ahead of most folks. For me, I wasn't an anti-fragile person when it came to this kind of thing naturally. When I started in retail (laughs) sales, I was standing at the back and avoiding the customers. I worked at Radio Shack and we sold cell phones as like an offshoot but it was a big laborious process to sell somebody a cell phone at Radio Shack. And I was always so scared that I was going to like ruin somebody's phone number or their bill or something. I would literally, when somebody would want to do that, I'd just give it to somebody else because I was so nervous and stressed out. Like 
take the $20 that you'll get for doing that. I'd rather just not be so stressed out. So I'm definitely not anti-fragile. Five years in the retail world got me there. And then, yes, taking that over to the cold call and the B2B world helped me a ton because you realize none of this is about me. None of this is personal. And there's magic in bouncing back after a no. And there's magic in killing them with kindness. So you learn all of those things. I learned it through just banging my head against the wall for many, many years. I imagine other people have to get there that way too. If you show up with that mindset, bless you. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, you're special. Most of us have to work up to that. So I get it. Call reluctance is a thing. And I think probably the best way through it is to do it. You know, simple as it sounds, you're only going to get to the other side by doing the action. There's no magic pill you can take to have you not be reluctant about it. <laughs> yeah. You sound very much in the school of thought around like exposure therapy. Yeah. It's yes. just like you're just doing it, exposing yourself to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely relate with you in avoiding opportunities. My first sales job was at 18 going door to door selling house painting services. So you know, calling people on the phone seems so easy compared to that because like you said, you could just hang up and you leave and the person doesn't see you. There's not this awkward thing. You're not at somebody's house. <laughs> You're at someone's house. Sidebar, I can't tell you how many people, guys, always guys, answered in their robe that was open with their tidy whities on and their belly hanging out. I'm like, dude, come on. Come on. Help me out. I'm having a day. Yeah. Are you going to buy something? Yeah. You said something, though, I thought was really interesting. You said it's not about me. And... That's a really cool way of thinking about it because it almost takes like all of the pressure off of you. Completely. To where, hey, this is not about me nailing this pitch. It's about getting this conversation started. Can you share a little bit more about that and expand a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. This, again, came through trial and error of me just Mm -hmm. being a BDR. The first, I'd say, month or so that I was in my first BDR role, I did pretty well. And definitely well compared to what was already happening there, which wasn't much as far as top of funnel activity. So that made me feel even better. You know, the little progress that I saw, the couple of meetings that I booked were great and everybody was stoked about it. That next month did not, because I had nothing built, no process. It was all just low hanging fruit that I had gotten in that first month or so. It was just, of course, nobody's called anybody forever. I'm going to make a few calls and find a few people that are willing to take a meeting. You know I mean? It was very easy. I very quickly fell into not that same scenario the next month. And it forces you to kind of recognize like holes in your game, you know, the things that you're kind of lacking. And you absolutely only get there through like exposing yourself through the activity. And so I think that for me, it's always been about like, hey, If I'm feeling like I'm not liking the outcomes that I'm seeing, then I always know there are a few things that I can do that are in my control, but a large part of it is outside of my control. Mm -hmm. So detaching from those outcomes completely helps with, you know, then you're not showing up every day feeling like, oh man, you know, they said no to me or I didn't get this meeting and you're you, you're just always so stressed out with all of these weighted outcomes when you can, and again, it just comes through trial and error for most people, I think. It did for me. But when you can get to the point where you're just like, you know what? I know what needs to be done today and I'm going to do it. 
and this is my circle of influence. And these are the things that I'm going to pull on the levers that I'm going to pull and release or whatever it is. But outside of that, if I've done those things then I've done my job and that's it. And then I got super lucky too, because my leadership, the person that I was setting meetings for understood that when I kind of had that revelation and brought that to them and I was like, okay, well, I'm stressed out. I know that that probably bleeds over into my work quality. And you've maybe even mentioned to me that I seem stressed out. (laughs) You know, here's how I'm detaching. And it made a ton of sense. And it improved everybody's kind of way of looking at what we were doing at the top of the funnel. Because it's very easy to just be so KPI obsessed when you're in these types of roles, like as a BDR, you know. But if you can detach from some of those outcomes and remove, you know, you as being the victim or the victor, right? You also have to be detached from the winning as well, which I feel like helps a ton because then you're never caught flat-footed. If you're winning and you're having a great week, yeah, good. Glad the process is working, but I'm not going to get too wrapped up in that because this is just the process working. It isn't even me winning, right? Same way with when it's a negative outcome. All right, this is the the other side of the outcomes from the process that I'm running, but it's not me that's getting told no. Right. And then you stay in the middle and you're just always running. And then I got very quickly fulfilled by other parts of the job, right? Like the recognition of how are you so consistent? You know, how do you seem to manage all of these things? And it's because I wasn't so stressed out and so personally connected to it all. Yeah. I mean, it's such brilliant advice, detaching from the outcomes and like putting your self-esteem into the stuff that you can control. Yeah. Own that stuff, own it and be all about it, but recognize that it stops at a certain point. Yeah. And there's so much, especially with prospects. I mean, they have the ultimate control. All we can do is sort of influence right? a yes or a no or a maybe or an right now or whatever it might be. Have you read uh, Thinking in Bats or heard of that book by Annie Duke? No. So she talks about something I think would be really interesting for you. And it's related to what you just shared. And the whole concept is she's a professional poker player or ex-professional poker player, one or the other. And the whole book is how you can think more like a game of poker when you make decisions. Mm. And it's a book about how to make smarter decisions. And one of the things she talks about, the example that's so relevant to this is putting on a seatbelt or not. She's like, if you went a whole year without wearing a seatbelt and never got in an accident or never got hurt, that would not make not wearing a seatbelt, a good decision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the result was a good one. Yeah. And then contrary to that, you could wear a seatbelt every single time you're in a car for an entire year and you could get in a car wreck and get really hurt. But again, that didn't make wearing a seatbelt a bad decision. So good decisions can have bad outcomes and bad decisions can have good outcomes. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is like really focus on that process. That was what really helped you. Yeah, because you can get lost in that. I mean, that's exactly what happens with top of the funnel activity. You send one really bad email to the one person who is actually thinking about the thing that you do and you book a meeting and you, and if you're self-obsessed, you're thinking, I'm changing all my sequences to this shitty email, you know, when in reality, (laughs) no, 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 no. That's just the process working. That's just the, that's one of those variables that's outside of your circle of influence that was in your favor today tomorrow might not be the case. You know, very interesting. Very interesting. What was the name of that book? Uh, Thinking at Bets. Thinking at Bets. All right. Yeah. I'll write that down. That's cool. Yeah. It's a really good book. To get to kind of the theme for today, I think this is a really good segue. Yeah. Is that 
you have a ton of experience in the outbound game and and more specifically what sticks out to me about your experience is that you've worked with a few of these companies that you know outsource this SDR the sales development function mm -hmm. so you get to see a lot of examples across a lot of different companies where as someone that is maybe a sales development leader at a particular company they're not really seeing their stuff outside of the context of their company yep and there's a lot of stuff that you've seen that goes against the grain of what you should or shouldn't do yeah. <laughs> that you might see advice on a LinkedIn or read in a book and that sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah. actually what might be kind of good, you want to give a little bit of context into the work that you're doing right now. And then, yeah, what are some of those things that you're seeing that kind of go against the grain that work? Yeah. I mean, I think it started for me really when I made the transition from, so I had been a BDR in a really niche area, like data analytics, professional services. So just a very odd kind of place. And it was all enterprise. Yeah. And I had worked at two different companies doing business development, SDR work there, built out the programs, set things up, really kind of dug into that world. And that's where I fell in love with, you know, sales development. What I realized when I started working at the sales developers, which was the first outsourced company that I ever worked for, you know, and they're servicing many different clients across many different industries. The first thing I realized is that, okay, like, I have three years worth of knowledge about how to be an SDR in the data analytics professional services enterprise space. There's going to be a certain percentage of those things that transfer over, some of the basic blocking and tackling type things. But a large part of what I was doing that's working or that was working over there will not work for us significant percentage of the clients that I'm working with now, because it's just all context. And I think this is where we kind of came to this, you know, topic of conversation is that the advice you see on LinkedIn all the time or on Instagram or YouTube or whoever's giving out sales advice, and it's not even their fault. So I'm not mad at anybody, but just like huge PSA, there's never any context to what they're saying. <laughs> and so, you know, you have to try things out yourself and try things in your industry to your ICP and your buyer persona. Because I can tell you from, you know, working with hundreds of different types of clients in outbound sales across tons of different industries, you know, things like um, manufacturing, clients where we're calling into public's work offices to sell road working services. I mean, just the most obscure things all the way to SaaS, B2B SaaS, what you think of probably when you think of an SDR. And context is everything in the approach. So one of the first things that I realized was everybody has an opinion about the way to open up a cold call. I mean, it is just, and it can get heated sometimes with, you know, this is a horrible way to start, or this is the only way to start. Yeah. I think you and I both know anybody that's speaking in absolutes is absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you definitely hear that, hey, this isn't the right way to do it. I shouldn't do it this way. Well, uh, one of the first things I realized was, okay, I was introducing myself, the way that I was calling in the enterprise data analytics world was I was very formal. I was calling, I was introducing myself. I was saying, my name is James. I'm calling from EvaluServe, you know, and very front heavy with information, I, you know, IDing because you're dealing with typically skeptical, more analytical people. 
when you're calling into data analytics leaders. One of the first clients I worked for was calling into sales leaders. Whew, wrong approach. The script we were using at the sales developers was, hey, this is um, James. Do you have 27 seconds for me to share why I called? And I read that and I was like, what is this BS? <laughs> that sounds so stupid. Yeah. Literally. I was like, this is the dumbest thing. This is such a dumb approach. It was never work. Tried it, did it, it worked. Light bulb, got it. <laughs> you know, like, okay, well, in this particular instance, because of who we're calling into and the type of day that they have and the things that they're worried about, hey, this particular approach works very well. And it was a powerful thing to kind of see that, sure, asking how you're doing today at the beginning of a cold call might not be a great idea for some people in some industries, but there are times where it works. One of my favorite kind of flying in the face of what people tell you not to do <laughs> right now with the work that I'm doing now is we work with clients at sales gig, the company I work for now on LinkedIn campaigns. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves to talk about social selling best practices, right? And everybody says it's got to be a long game. It's got to be nurture. You got to connect with people and you got to build your brand and you got to do this whole thing. Well, the truth of the matter is, and this is what I think is so funny. Not everybody wants to do that kind of thing. Not every salesperson is super interested in building a personal brand and being a thought leader. So is there a way to still use a channel like LinkedIn without building and nurturing and creating a brand? Well, from what we've seen, we go out and we write cadences for our clients that we're sending out. We're doing it manually, but we're sending out cadences that are very direct. They're not soft, touchy. It's like, hey, I'm reaching out to you because we help leaders like you do X, Y, Z. And I literally want to book time with you to talk about it. And it works. That's it. And it's 57 minutes after we connect with the person. And it converts 60% yeah. of the time for you know, a handful of clients. It's, it flies in the face of what people would tell you to do. So it, it's always, always interesting to me. Oh man, I'm, yeah, I definitely want to dig into these two. And if we zoom out a little bit, I don't know about you. I think SaaS is actually the hardest. I think it's the hardest industry to prospect and sell in. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's inundated. Yeah. It's what everybody's doing. Everybody's has SDRs. Everybody's SDRs are calling each other's SDRs. And so that's where a lot of those best practices come from. Yep. And so it's important to realize that like, hey, this is within a bubble. You know, like absolutely the connect and pitch approach won't work for a large subset of people. I'm here to tell you that it does work for some people, right? I mean, you think about, all right, I'm targeting somebody that works in manufacturing, right? An engineer type person. They probably get on LinkedIn once or twice a week. And so what we found is those types of people, yeah, it takes longer for them to respond. We don't build sequences where we're sending follow-up messages all the time. It's just one very brief, here's why we want to connect with you. Can we call you on the phone? Because we know the phone's better. Yep. Here's the, no I mean, you know, you, it's based on knowledge of the prospect. It's based on context and it works and you deploy it and it flies in the face of what a SaaS person would tell you, you know, but it absolutely, it's so much fun calling into and setting meetings for random, obscure businesses that, you know, are, have only grown through referrals. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and are now wanting to do some outbound work, it's tons of fun to figure these things out. Cause that's where you see a lot of that. Oh, well, the sales trainer said not to do this, but it works with the truckers, <laughs> you know? Well, it's interesting because it comes back to, I think we might've talked about this before, this kind of why, what, how element of mm-hmm. if we just focus all on the how and here's how you open a cold call and don't provide any context into why and you know the framework behind something. Because I work with a lot of these industries. I, I, I just started working with a client that like works with a hospital networks to outsource the radiology department. You know, uh, yeah. I've worked with consultants, uh, professional services, insurance. And it's really interesting because I come in and put a lot of pressure on myself and they don't even know what a permission-based opener is on a cold call usually. <laughs> You're blowing their minds. And doing that is, oh, I've never heard that one before is what their prospects say. Yeah. Yep. Whereas you call a sales or marketer, you know, in tech, different story. But let's dig into the the cold call opener. Absolutely. Like fundamentally, what are some of the things you think about? It's like, hey, you need to check these boxes when you open a cold call. You know, one of the things that's been super interesting, and this has actually come from the work that I've done with the SDR league with Ryan Reisert. So yep. Ryan goes live. He does live cold calls every morning. And I produce, you know, I'm a part of the production with the live stream and help him out on that. And so, but I get to watch him make these live cold calls. <laughs> and his whole thing is he uses frameworks and approaches that people say don't work. Mm-hmm. And he does it on purpose because just to show that, Yes, there will be a certain, you know, section of people that won't respond well to, hey, how are you doing today? Or asking for a meeting before you've even said who you are and what you do. You know, I mean, there he does some wild stuff that makes almost zero sense when you read it on paper, <laughs> you know? But then you see it happen and unfold and understand that it's always going to work a certain percentage of the time. It's like an anchor man, you know, the panther cologne. Yeah. You know, Sex works yes. <laughs> Sex Panther, yeah, it's worked sixty percent of the time, all the time. It's like really that kind of mindset. Yeah. So what to me that I what I've seen and found out is it opener doesn't matter. It's how many times have you used this opener? How confident are you in this opener? Yeah. How confident are you, mm-hmm. and how much knowledge do you have about what you're doing in with your language? Because a lot of these cold call frameworks, and I've again, seen this from watching Ryan, it's a domino effect. You're doing things on purpose to get a certain response to have the call go a certain way. One of the frameworks that I love that Ryan uses is from a gentleman named Townsend Wardlaw. You could type his name in on YouTube and he has this cold calling video where he kind of goes through this framework. It's from like 2014 or something like that, but it's fantastic. And it's just him writing it on some big post-it note or something like that. But it's great because what it does is he kind of looks at things a little differently, puts it as cold calling is like just an interruptive communication style. And so the way that he will kind of set it up is he'll say, hey, he'll call somebody and the first thing he does is ask them how they're doing. And he has a whole reason why, right? And goes into it. I won't go into it now, but you know, there's a reason why. And once you get the answer, you respond in a certain way that leads you into the next phase of the framework. And then the very next part is, yep, I'm actually just reaching out to see if you'd have 15 minutes to uh, hop on a call with me later this week. And that's it, right? And the person's like, what? What are you talking about? What do you want to meet about? Oh, fantastic. So, and then you go into your thing. So 
you're getting to the same outcome as another type of script with another type of framework. You're just kind of taking a different journey and doing it in a different way. So if you understand that part of whatever you're doing, you're fine. It matters zero about what the words you say. That's what I found. You could say 27 seconds. You could say how you're doing. As long as you're aware of what you're doing to the prospect with your language, Mm -hmm. what to expect from them back and how to handle those different types of responses, you'll be fine. You'll get to the same kinds of outcomes and the same percentage of, you know, time that you would using any other approach. For sure. Yeah. So, the tonality and the confidence. Yeah. And I think people over talk about tonality too, because I, I think the confidence and your demeanor and like what's up here, that's going to drive most of the tonality, mm-hmm. but it's placebo effect. <laughs> if you didn't know any different and someone said, hey, you should start a cold call and say, hey, James, what's up, my man? And you've never done it before? And they said, oh, you do that a thousand times and it'll work every time. And everyone on the sales team is like, yeah, it works really awesome. You try it, it probably would work for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. There's so much there in the belief. So I love that with the cold calls. Let's talk LinkedIn briefly. What are some other, the connecting pitch, it's funny. Yeah. I pitch people on LinkedIn too. I just ask them if I can pitch them. Straight up. <laughs> I say, hey, I, I have free stuff and we have paid stuff. Do you want to hear about the free stuff or the paid stuff or, or, or both? And I just let them tell me and then I share it, you know? Mm-hmm. But with LinkedIn, are there any other kind of things that you, that you guys are doing that kind of go in the face of what people would normally recommend to do on LinkedIn? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it it highly depends on the different, like what are the outcomes that you're looking for, right? So with some clients, let's say they're a business that thrives off referrals, right? And they just need to have as big of a network and need to know as many people in this space as possible, then the approach that you could take on LinkedIn, I mean, and one that we do that works fantastically for these types of folks, but again, flies in the face of saying that you need to be personalized or reach out with a specific reason why you want to meet with them. Some of our messaging is just like, hey, I'm a connector. I love connecting with my network. Would you totally want to connect? Like really high level networky type stuff. Again, mm-hmm. when I read it, it's like, oh God, this. how does this work? You know, And it definitely doesn't work with certain people, but in certain spaces, it's like, because that person that's sending that message is a CEO and they have a great profile and they have 25 years in the industry and they reaching out to other, it's all these variables that play into it and it works, right? And it converts. So a lot of the things you hear about LinkedIn is you've got to be super personalized. It's got to be, you can't connect and pitch. Well, I'm here to tell you again, (laughs) you know, that in certain cases, you can connect and pitch and get a good response because your connect and pitch, if you're reaching out to somebody who's not always on LinkedIn, they're not even, they're not going to even really know, <laughs> you know, they're not going to even understand that you connected with them. They accepted the request. They didn't look at their LinkedIn for another three days and they see a message from you. Yeah. That kind of person isn't mad at you for sending a connect and pitch. It's the sales guy who's always on LinkedIn anyway that hates that because it messes with him because he's trying to hit his quota to hit, send his messages out on LinkedIn, <laughs> you know? So I think, yeah. again, all flying in the face of what you hear, but highly, highly dependent on the context. I mean, I would almost literally say, Jason, anything you've heard not to do, I would make a case that there is some section, some sector, Mm -hmm. some prospect, some industry that would respond positively to it. No question, right? Like don't send a white paper. I bet you there's, you know, a lawyer ICP out there that only responds to white papers. You know, it's just, that's what I've found over thousands of different campaigns with tons of different industries. 
there's a solution there somewhere and there's a way to make outbound work for everybody, but it's always different. Always. Yeah. It's so weird because I think that when we prospect, we can get caught in this loop of thinking that the prospect is consuming the same content that we consume to do our job. <laughs> yeah, right? That's and so funny. Prospecting people, they're probably not <laughs> consuming that information, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's such a good point. Like, oh, are they going to know this is a cold calling tactic from 2019? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk quickly about personalization. You sort of alluded to this, and I... I see something very similar to where there's this argument, personalization, relevance. I'm like, dude, it's all the same stuff. Like it's the stuff you add to the message that is not part of the template. Yeah. And what I have seen is that really, if it's relevant for the person and you're talking about a problem that they're experiencing or something that they're, if it's relevant to a priority, people will respond with very little actual customization on the email. Yep. But what are you seeing out there in terms of personalization? Like how much of the outreach needs to be personalized and under what context are you seeing it? What, what kind of stuff are you seeing out there? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think most people use personalization too early in the top of funnel process. Okay. So they want to try and get personalized at the first touch when they're trying to see who's responding, uh -huh. you know, cause that's essentially one of the reasons that Ryan can't get rid of me <laughs> working with him is because, you know, he wrote that book outbound sales, no fluff. And they lay out this bucketing system of how to work leads at the top of the funnel. And when I read that, I was a BDR building out my team and it like changed my life. And I literally still apply that now. And when you are grouping your leads and your activity, you're grouping it, you have a group that's working, right? So these are the people that your long list of prospects that you're cold calling and emailing and social selling to or whatever that you haven't responded yet right? You haven't gotten any sort of answer. A lot of people want to personalize that bucket. Yeah. The best thing to do with that bucket is to personalize by persona, not person, right? Because you don't even know if they're ever going to pick up the phone because they might just not ever pick up the phone, especially if these are your first few times trying to reach out to them. They could be an email person or a LinkedIn person, right? Spending a whole ton of time personalizing on that first touch working bucket makes zero sense. What you need to do, you need to work through that bucket. You need to get a response back. So on the phone, yeah, send me an email. At that point, personalize the email. Absolutely. Go do research about that person and find out things that would be relevant. Use what you found out when you spoke to them on the phone to personalize the email. But before that, I put tons of effort behind trying to personalize emails. First of all, it's not scalable. And when you try and scale personalization, it always comes off weird and not as effective as if you were to just not do any personalization at all and play the numbers, right? And go cast a wide net or be, you know, one-off emailing. So my take on it is personalization, absolutely appropriate once you've gotten engagement and response back. Totally. You have to. You'd be silly not to. But to spend a whole ton of time trying to figure out a way to personalize that bucket to working, like just trying to get their attention phase doesn't make a ton of sense to me. It just doesn't. I think you're better off understanding, like you said, what are some of the generic general problems that this persona deals with that I can speak to and then understand that there are going to be people where those will hit, you know, if your activities are, where they need to be, you'll just find those people. And then other people, 
will recognize that that's something that they're probably going to worry about in a little bit and tell you to follow up with them. And then other people are going to tell you they don't have that problem at all. You know, and then you just categorize them as you go through. But I think it's super important to kind of have that laid out for sure. Yeah, this flies in the face, man, of a lot of advice out there. And there's kind of two thoughts I have on that. There's one, I've been talking about this a lot. With outbound, I think the big problem is that the people's funnels looks like this. It looks like a T, right? So they do all of this outreach and they spend all of this time up here to get very little response. And they actually aren't working any kind of funnel at all. Yeah. And what you're suggesting, it sounds like, is instead of spending all this time here, let's spend the time on the part that's actually the funnel, part of the equation on the people raising their hand. And my business coaches, that what they share with me around the marketing has been the same thing I've been talking about with prospecting. And it's the mistake most people make with their marketing is they engineer the entire process around a conversion <laughs> versus starting conversations. Yeah. So it's really weird, right? You see all this stuff and it's like, click here, click that, sign up here, fill out this form, fill out this versus chat with us. Mm-hmm. And I think people do the same thing without some low level ask. Exactly. With outbound, the whole process is engineered to get meetings versus how do I get people to raise their hands so that I can start forming in the buckets thing is brilliant, by the way. But how can I get people to start you know, raising their hand or putting themselves in these buckets so that I can do the thing that I think is the biggest challenge in sales. And that's prioritizing your time, right? How do you make the outbound time that you have, especially like AEs, if you get an hour a day to prospect, you better not be personalizing stuff people aren't responded to, right? Focus on (laughs) lowest hanging fruit, highest opportunity, people opening up emails, people watching your videos, you know, that sort of thing. So I think it's really yeah. nice that you share. Again, a little bit of a paradigm shift f- from what I feel like a lot of people think about when it comes to outbound. Yeah. I think there's an amazing amount of attention that is not paid to the value of like, hey, let's figure out who picks up the phone. Yeah. Let's just call through this list this first time when we start out a campaign and we're not trying to set a meeting. Let's not even get there. Because then, you know, you think about all these times and i've this has happened to me so many times as a bdr you build the list you build the message you've been role playing with people on the script and you launch and nobody picks up for days at a time <laughs> you know and your wind is just taken out of your sails and then you're you're stressed out because nobody's picking up and you're not having conversations and you're not able to test to see if anything's actually working, (laughs) you know, if all of that stuff that you wrote actually matters. So what if you started out a campaign and just said, Hey, I'm not going to call anybody to try and set a meeting. I'm literally just going to call through to see who picks up. Right. And if they pick up, I'm going to say, Hey, is this John? Great. And then hang up. That may sound silly, but if you build a list of people that, you know, pick up the phone and you're going through that, a you're on the phone already. Right. And then maybe you don't just hang up, maybe you say something or whatever, but you know, call reluctance wise, start picking up the phone to crack off that new campaign and just see who picks up the phone to warm yourself up and then go back to that list of people that, you know, are more inclined to pick up the phone and know, and be ready to have more conversations. You know, it's an interesting way to think about it. That's outcome based and not activity based. Right. Which is an inherent problem with the SDR world is. Yeah you know, we love the meetings booked and we love the revenue. And that's what we always tie the SDRs pay to and say that needs to happen. But at the same time, I've seen plenty of great SDRs killing their quota 
and getting yelled at for not making enough dials or sending enough emails, you know? So yeah, reality. You know, it's really funny. I think an appropriate analogy is I met my wife on Tinder. Fantastic. So what I did on Tinder and I've always been a relationship kind of guy. So Tinder was like a last resort for me. Interesting. This is in 2016. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll try Tinder and see what happens. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah. Used to be trying it the week or two before that. I used an app called Bonfire. <laughs> now, what Bonfire does is it allows you to swipe right on 200 people at a time. So you don't think, I don't even know if it still exists or not. So I, I approached it, yeah, because I'm also a marketer by trade. So I approached <laughs> it as a marketing exercise. So then you match with people and then you figure out who you want it to, you know, swipe also uh, right on and then, you know, message or whatever. Speed up that process. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing where, I could sit there individually and look at the person's profile and I could spend all this time. I could spend five, 10 minutes looking at someone's profile and figure out if I want to swipe right on them when really there's maybe a 5% chance. Cause I'm not a good looking white guy in a predominantly <laughs> white place in Portland at the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where they're going to swipe right on me, dude. Yeah. You know, and you could waste all of this time on people that are not even going to do that. That's it. So it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It's like, let's just, and this is the phone ready leads thing. I'm sure you'll talk about here in a couple of minutes. Yeah. This is, it's just a brilliant idea where you guys are doing this for people. Before we get to that, I got to ask you one more thing. Cause we didn't talk about cold email. Yes. What's, what's a hot take you got on cold email? Something that you <laughs> see kind of flying against the, the green. The reason we didn't talk about cold email is because cold email is not much to talk about from what I've seen over the last year. It's gotten tough. I mean, it's just, yeah, I've seen it work very well. 2015, 2016, I mean, if I showed you some of the emails I was sending in 2014 and 15 that were booking meetings, you'd be like, what? They were so long. They had graphics and, yeah. you know, all of these things that aren't best practices. Quite honestly, Jason, over the last year, I've seen email as a channel to do marketing through. I, I really haven't seen anything that would make me say, look to email first if you want to have more conversations. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great nurture tool. It always will be. You'll all, And huge advantage of email is that you can play the campfire game or whatever that thing was where you can send out a bunch of emails, right? And you don't have to sit there and necessarily do it yourself and then see who responds. That's great. The asynchronous aspect of email is fantastic. I just personally have seen the phone, especially over the last year, year and a half with everybody working from home and nobody... It's interesting. I think a lot of people obviously have said, hey, we can't cold call because nobody's at work. Well, for the folks brave enough to continue to cold call and clever enough to find mobile numbers or find out a way to get in touch with somebody on the phone, I've seen that it's just so much more of a powerful top of funnel action than sending an email because it's you got to wait for a response. And, you know, another thing about email in cold outbound is the weight of an open is greatly inflated in, in my opinion. Yep. Clicks and opens and tracking those metrics. I mean, a lot of the times if you dig into it, you find out that your reporting's kind of jacked up because it's reporting opens from your internal team or, you know, I mean, I've seen that so many times. So I think email is a good kind of nurture. Hey, I just gave you a cold call and left you a voicemail. Hey, I tried to reach you on LinkedIn and call you as email best. Like, because, yeah, sure, email could be a good channel for some folks, but I don't ever, right now, I'm not looking to it as my first go-to for a channel. I'm looking at it as a subsequent supplemental complementary thing to either the phone or social. Yeah. 
Now, it's really interesting. I'm seeing the same exact thing, man, where it's emails become this thing where don't don't over personalize an email. Nope, not worth it. You know, <laughs> a thing that we're seeing work really well is, hey, James, when I talk to people like you in X industry, they're typically working on one of these three priorities. And those priorities are very specific, right? The language mm-hmm. is very good. It's very specific to their problems. Are you dealing with any of those right now? And that's it. That's the email. And then the emails might focus on those three topics, but it's not overly personalized. I might... In general, if I'm doing stuff that's very large deal sizes, you know, 100K plus, I'm going to look for triggers and things like that. But again, I'm not going to spend 10 minutes writing an email. For sure. I'm going to plug in, hey, I saw on your 10K, which I use these keywords to search for. took me less than five minutes that you guys are focused on this, that you'd uh, want to have a conversation because of this reason. You're calling, you're doing the LinkedIn thing, and it's emails there. It's the impression, you know, kind of thing. It's a personalized ad that you're putting in front of the person. Precisely. Precisely. Yep. I think that's a great way to put it. And that's how I see it too, for sure. Dude, this has been a great conversation. We got to go. But uh, before we do, what do you got going on? How can people connect with you? You're posting all kinds of good content. You got a couple of business ventures you're a part of. Where's the best place to go to connect with you, man? Yeah. LinkedIn is the best place. Uh, You can find me there, James R. Bodden. And that, you know, that's where I live. That's where I've been for you know, it's been since 2016. Uh, I've been regularly just kind of posting content there, typically about sales development stuff, because that's what I've been doing. And it's been fun. I've been able to meet really cool people and become involved in some of these fun things. So I run a, a podcast production business called the Lunch Break Media Group. I've done that since 2018, where we help small to mid-sized businesses and entrepreneurs run their own podcasts and uh, have the SDR League that we've kicked off this year with Jake Housden and Ryan Reiser. Super exciting. We've had a couple of cold cages. SDRleague.com is where you can go to find out more about that. Uh, that's really the way that I um, you know, kind of try and give back, I guess, to the SDR community. Our whole mission there is to entertain and empower and educate SDRs you know, with fun, kind of innovative content live cold calling, cold cage matches and PRL live. We have a show where we do cold call countdowns. We had Josh Braun on recently. So yeah, try to do fun things to educate the community. And then phonereadyleads.com is Ryan's business. I'm heavily involved with, you know, just supporting everything he does, right? He's influenced a ton of how I look at this top of funnel work and phone ready leads is exactly what we were talking about earlier. The reality is, not everybody has the structure and infrastructure to do those things that we were talking about. Like take the time to call and see if somebody picks up or not. Like in a lot of cases, you, you're paying those people to make calls and set meetings, right? So if you're in a position like that and you want to have a list of phone picker uppers delivered to you, you could go to phonereadyleads.com. Ryan's running a cool promotion. We'll give you the first set of them for free so you can just test it out. All things that are really involved in just trying to help up-level the SDR community and uh, make top of funnel work a little bit easier for people. And then got to give a shout out to sales gig. I work with the team over there to help small to mid-sized businesses grow through outsourced sales development work. And it's where, you know, all of this fun insight that we've gone over um, has come from because I get to talk about this kind of stuff all day. And man, Jason, this has been an honor for me. Huge fan of your show. Thank you so much for allowing me to come on and share some time with you. Oh, you bet, man. Thanks for spending an hour with me. But one of the things that I talked about, James, that I really enjoyed 
and it was just really unexpected, was the cold calling and the mindset behind it and, and detaching from the outcomes. It's really a pretty a Buddhist uh, Zen way of looking at things where you focus on your, what's I've heard referred to as your locus of control. So the things that you can actually focus on, those are the things that you wrap your self-esteem around, the things that you have control over. You don't have control over the prospect having a bad day when you call them or them deciding not to take a meeting with you. You can influence those decisions, but you don't control them. That's a really good reminder with your cold calls. That's the thing I'm gonna be thinking about, especially when I prospect and sell, is I can only focus on the inputs. I can't really focus on those outputs. Those are lagging indicators, things that I don't have as much control over. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, Like I said, if you're a rep that's looking to get some actionable tactics and strategies, stuff that actually works, with cold outreach to land meetings with your ideal clients, and you wanna apply some of the stuff that we talked about today with James, make sure to check out our prospecting boot camps. It is an investment in yourself, it's not free, but you can check it out at blissfulprospecting.com. We have some people getting amazing results. Last week, Ethan sent me a text and he set four meetings off of nine cold calls using a talk track framework that we built out together. So make sure to check it out if you're interested, blissfulprospecting.com. And uh, if not, keep hanging around for the free stuff. So I appreciate you tuning in. Make sure to subscribe, like, all that good stuff, and we'll talk to you soon.